So welcome back everyone to the Loaf podcast for season two, episode seven. This is our last guest episode of the season. And fittingly, we have a very esteemed guest with us today, Mr. Andrew Jennings, OBE. Mr. Jennings has been in the retail business for over 40 years, working as the chief executive of Carstart, Saks Fifth Avenue, Harrods, and more. He's also a best-selling author of Almost Is Not Good Enough, How to Win or Lose in Retail. Mr. Jennings, thank you so much for being with us here today. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And I'm excited uh, to be talking on your podcast. Thank and you. Uh, young innovators like yourselves um, are certainly, ha I have a great interest um, in helping young people, A, in the business world and C, in the charity world. And as you're probably aware, I do quite a lot with the Prince's Trust, where we look yes. after different advantage um, and often out of work. Um, young people. Yeah, we recently interviewed Jonathan Townsend as well, actually, which was a, a really great experience. Great. He's a terrific guy. He really yeah. is. And he's done a lot of um, great work. And of course, over the coronation, we were able to hear a lot about um, the Prince's Trust as His Royal Highness King Charles III um, set it up. He was the innovator and is now the president of it. Yes, yeah. you told us, um, or sorry, we saw, correct me if I'm wrong, that you donated all of the profits of your book to the Prince's Trust. Is that correct? I did. That's amazing. Last um, cent, and we didn't, um, I took no expenses out of it. So we raised, you know, best part of about £90,000 out of it. That's amazing. Um, yeah, so just before we get into the more meaty questions, I wanted to, to break the ice because as a, as a German myself, I was, I was just curious about your experience. In working with a German company, my family lives close to Dusseldorf, where you launched um, your big flagship, uh, flagship store concept in 2013. So what was that like working with Karstadt in Germany? Oh, no, no. I love the German people. My German, I'm glad you're not speaking to me in German because it's a bit <laughs> rusty. Um, <clears throat> but, I, you know, they are special people. Um, they're special because they do things differently. Yeah. And in the retail business they still sell by category so you go into a store and you find the pant department or the sweater department or the shirt department and uh, within that by brand um, and of course um, they have a bigger build generally so a lot of European brands um, do not always do well if they don't understand who the customer is mm -hmm. uh, but you know it's a um, they're interesting people, they're innovative, and they're very efficient. Okay, that, that's good. That's good to, to, to hear. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. So maybe we'll broaden it out a little bit. And just by way of introduction, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into the retail business, please? I got into retail when I was about 13 years old um, on the basis that um, <clears throat> I um, had a very lot, or my parents had a very large garden. And I used to grow vegetables and I'd sell them on the local market so that I could, in fact, um, fund buying my first bicycle. And, um, and I've always been sort of an innovator uh, with sort of looking at opportunities and um, selling things to make a bit of cash. And my, my mother um, was, um, ran an organization called the London Missionary Society. And we had to give a percentage um, of whatever we made 
to that charity. So I understood charity from a young age. But um, I got into the retail business at an early age when I was about 17. I became a trainee um, with an organization. And um, then I progressed um, to store management, buying, um, became a chief merchant. And, um, you know, it was all done um, on that basis. And I studied at night um, and um, um, so that I could get, you know, the right qualification because I didn't go to university. And um, so it was a, a good start, but it was all done on the ground. That's really interesting, especially that you didn't go to university because we spoke to Dame Moya Green recently. I'm not sure if, if you're aware of who she is. And and she said, well, a degree is not even necessary for success in the business world. And she kind of spoke a little bit about that. Yeah, no. And I was quite sort of, uh, I was um, I was delighted um, when I was awarded an honorary doctorate at um, the um, University of Surrey. Um, wow. Because I, it was my first graduation ceremony, and um, I was there with 600 students who were all graduating with their bachelors and their masters, and I came in last with my doctorate, and um, it was uh, a great experience. And I thought, oh, I've never been to uh, this sort of ceremony before, um, but um, it, it was um, I, I was um, thrilled. That's amazing. Now, so now that you're where you are today, we um we wanted to ask a little bit about your your strategy and your marketing, and we know that experiential marketing plays a large role in your retail strategy. So, for our listeners, what are some ways that you create memorable experiences that resonate with your target audience? Okay, <clears throat> look, in my book, and it's always been um, that you've got to have the retail business has got to be about theatre. It's about experiences. It's about fun, it's about excitement, it's about attracting people. A retail business um, needs to be like a magnet and a magnet attracts people. And so where you've got events and happenings, and I mean big events, then this is very important. A couple of examples, you spoke about Germany. Yeah. We ran a Feel London um, promotion um, event and um, all of our group, um, turned into London, London suppliers, products, um, events and happenings. And we even had buskers off the London underground coming over um, for our gala night. And um, we had the British ambassador um, there. We had celebrities. We had, and we supported a lot of German companies who made British style um, items for us. In Canada, um, then I had a every year a flower show in the store, and we had about 28 gardens um, in um, the Holt Renfrew store, in the main flagship store. And we took cosmetic houses, so we would have Esther Lauder and beautiful fragrance, and we would have a garden for it. And these were all, you know, quite large um, flower gardens. And um, we got institutions to come in with us, floral arrangers, um, florists, all of our windows. And we said, sniff, sniff, sniff your way to Holt Renfrew Flower Show. And uh, this was incredibly successful because it's about, again, 
creating a great experience. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. You, you've talked a lot about, for example, the, the creation and providing experience. And a lot of that is providing something that's new, sort of once it becomes stale, it's no longer really uh, an experience that people enjoy. And so that requires constant innovation. I just wanted to ask you, how do you go about fostering that culture of innovation with a company? Because you obviously can't just do it yourself and it needs to be a, a wider thing. Whatever organization I've been in, whether it was Saks, um, for example, um, you know, I looked at, there was a, a guy called Marvin Traub, who was the CEO of Bloomingdale's. And many years beforehand, he was a grandmaster. Um, he was the ringmaster of events and happenings. He even had the Queen of England visiting Bloomingdale's for a British promotion. And so <clears throat> we decided that every year we would have various events um, happening and store-wide, country-wide events. Uh, Saks in those days had about 60 stores across the country. And um, we ran um, this event um, on cashmere, feel cashmere. And we had cashmere everything, cashmere jewelry boxes, cashmere boxing gloves, cashmere skipping ropes, cashmere jumpers, cashmere suits, cashmere scarves, gloves, you name it. We were the headquarters for cashmere. This obviously launched in the September and um, we had a lot of designers make product for us. And this ran for about two and a half weeks. And we even had if you look in my book, you'll see an account um, of it in there. We even brought in cashmere goats. We tethered them in Central Park, New York. And then we had a, um, about 20 of them on leashes coming down Fifth Avenue with all the wow. traffic stops to come into the Fifth Avenue store. So we had a, uh, is it a flock? Of, of, um, I don't think it's a, a herd, flock. maybe. A herd. A herd. A herd. Um, of these animals so, but it's about how do you surprise and delight um, the customer also <clears throat> about how do you um, foster innovation you get your teams to travel so my marketing team my buying team they would go around the world they'd look for the best product and I was always a believer in we want to have a high percentage of newness into the store every season and if you're looking at special occasion times like Christmas, Easter, um, or Hanukkah, whatever it might be, then um, we would say we want at least 40% newness this season to what we had last season. And people will constantly go, and uh, we, we would also say we will own, uh, when I was heading up the Woolworths business in South Africa, and let me clarify, Woolworths in South Africa is rather like Marks and Spencer here, not like F.W. Woolworth. And um, we would, I would, um, we all agreed that we would have, we would own the special occasion business, i.e. Christmas time or Easter. So we went after this and we got big market share um, because, you know, the marketplace is tough out there and you need to gain market share um, to gain sales um, and profitability from your competitors. So again, innovation. Uh, and I think the other big thing is, as the head of the business, I saw myself as the chief innovation officer. So I would constantly look for new ideas and thoughts, 
we'd have innovation meetings, innovation seminars. We'd invite people um, to come and talk to us. Um, there's a book called A Category of One, and it's about unique businesses, some of them retail, some of them wholesale around the world. A guy called Joe Calloway wrote the book. So I invited Joe um, to come and um, meet with us and spend uh, a workshop with us talking about these things. Because again, you need outside influence, do things differently. Everybody does the same old thing. And um, you know, reward our customers um, for coming and seeing us and you'll, you'll build a huge amount of loyalty and you'll attract a much younger customer as well if you're innovating. You know, the, the department store world has, has, has dying um, across the globe. And one of the reasons is they're so blooming boring. It's the same old, they look archaic. Some of them look as if they're in the 1970s and 80s. And, um, but you get a, a store like Selfridges, they're great innovators. And you know, it's a modern business. And it's not just the yellow bag um, that people love um, to walk around with. It's everything that goes with the assortments, what they have, how they display the merchandise, what their windows are. And they're very into sustainability. And, you know, the customer finds sustainability important today. So it's all of these sorts of things. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sure whether you'd like me to talk any more about um, innovation, because I could talk for the rest of our, our call on this. No, I mean, we do want you to talk about innovation more, but maybe from the flip side, because you also mentioned in your book that August's decision, for example, to implement click and collect was highly criticized. So there's this idea that innovation can be highly criticized, but it ended up working out and being emulated by other companies. Can you perhaps think of a time when you made a decision that was controversial or unpopular, but ultimately successful? Yeah, um, I can tell you a couple. Um, but in my book, Almost Is Not Good Enough, and you mentioned it earlier, um, it, it has been um, very successful, and it really is an ideal. Why did I write it? Number one, because I wanted to um, share the stories of my experience across um, six different countries working on international business. And I also wanted to, as we mentioned before, uh, donate all of the proceeds to the Prince's Trust. And this was important and we achieved both of those things. And I tell many stories in this. Um, and if I give you a couple of things that we did, um, in Germany, um, at Karstadt, we, we started to sell product by um, brand name rather than just by category. I mentioned earlier that it's the pant department, the sweater department, the shirt department. And so we broke the mold on that. Um, and you know, people said it won't work, but it does work. Um, uh, the second thing is that um, I, um, one of my, uh, a guy who I spent a lot of time with, was a guy called, uh, as a CEO, and I hired him as an advisor uh, to me, was Ira Niemark. He was the chairman of Bergdorf Goodman in New York. And um, Ira, when he retired at the age of 70, got into 
um, the internet business, and this is 20 years ago, 25 years ago, so it was at his infancy, and um, he did designer wear online. It was a disaster, um, only because he was ahead of his time. Mm, if he'd yeah. have done it 10 years later, so sometimes these sort of things are about timing. Another one was in Woolworths in South Africa, we were a private label business. We had a big food business, but it was all our own private label. Um, and we introduced um, about 100 brands into the food department. Everybody said, and this was like um, Nescafe Coffee, Oxo, uh, and uh, Coca-Cola. Because everybody wants Coca-Cola. They don't want Woolies Cola. And, uh, and we called it the complete shop. So they didn't have to go to the competitors. And again, we just said, we're going to do this. And I can give you many other examples of um, that type of thing. We had a business in Australia called Country Road. We didn't have it in South Africa. And I said, why don't we bring it into South Africa? Well, we're not sure to work. Well, let's try it. Guess what? It ended up doing more business in South Africa than it did in Australia. So sometimes if you've got these ideas, uh, then you've got to go with them. That's perfect. Thank you very much. I think those are some good examples which really um, kind of exemplify that sort of thing where when people know that there's controversy, they don't want to make that change. You mentioned, for example, I can't quite remember the name of the guy who tried to introduce online retail. It was Ira Nima. Ira Nima. There you go. Um, and the introduction of the internet more generally is, I would argue, probably been the biggest revolution in retail in the last century. Where, what do you see being that next big step or the next revolution? Well, AI. I mean, there's no question about it. When I look at um, chat G GPT, I mean, that is amazing. You know, composing letters, writing speeches. Um, and I think AI is... You've got the simple example of like Amazon, when you go to buy a jacket, then they'll introduce a pair of pants mm. or there's always an introduction. They pick up about 20%, I understand, um, additional sales. And then when I look at it in a broader way, you know, we have merchandise planners for retail businesses. I think a lot of their work can be done by um, AI uh, forecasting, planning um, and you're still going to need, need human beings but these algorithms are becoming so smart today that um, everybody is going to go down this track and labor is expensive and um, staffing costs are expensive so I think there'll be you can then focus on uh, more expertise to interface with the customer but um, no question Artificial intelligence um, is certainly the way to go. It's uh, slightly scary as well, I would say. Yeah, slightly scary. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think we're slightly running out of time. So I've just got one last question to link back to what you were saying, and, and then we can wrap up, which is to ask, with the development of AI, which is going to have algorithms to provide exactly what the consumer wants, and with the internet to have it easily accessible, do you think the eventual death of bricks and mortar retail has been spelled, or do you think there's potential for it to be revived through using these methods. I oh, know there'll be bricks and mortar for the next 
uh, 500 years, is my prediction. Um, will it be as important? Look, the, the pandemic, um, it was pretty awful, but it did a few good things. It got people to understand to go online. I know a lot of people who said, oh, we'll never buy online. Well, they had no choice. And um, uh, they had to, to survive and to get merchandise and food and everything else coming in. But do I think, I think the traditional department store is dead. If you don't become relevant, and the key is relevance in retail, as long as bricks and mortar um, owners um, are relevant, they understand their customers, wants, needs, aspirations, and desires, then they will be successful. And I would predict that if um, e-commerce will, will not get more than 40% within the marketplace. Thank you so much. Um, before we wrap up, I just wanted to say, um, we read your book. It's it's an amazing book. And to anyone listening, I highly recommend that you, you go online on Amazon and buy Almost Is Not Good Enough by Andrew Jennings. Thank you very Thank much you. for coming on. Thank you. Take care and good luck, guys. You're doing a great job. Thank you. It's Thank been you an so absolute much. pleasure. Any anytime I can help you, let me know. Thank you. That was that was amazing. And um and good luck for the rest of your career. And uh, we hope to speak again in the in the future. I hope so. It's over to you. <laughs>